Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob Podcast feed. My name's Ray. I am your host. This episode is actually with Chef Brian Baxter, who's the current executive chef over at the Catbird Seat. He's the fifth executive chef at that restaurant. If you're not familiar with the Catbird Seat, it's a pretty unique concept. Started about eight to 10 years ago. The first chef was Josh Habiger, who's over at Bastion. He's the executive chef there. Uh, it was him and then also Ben and Max Goldberg, who are the founders of Strategic Hospitality. They own a couple different restaurants around the area. Pinewood Social is another thing that they opened. But they kind of started this restaurant under the guise of the chefs kind of being also the servers and, and kind of making a more connection with the guests. And it's been a huge success uh, so far. I mean, like I said, he's Baxter here is the fifth one. He's the first one with kind of like a Southern cuisine background. So that's kind of unique to the catbird seat, but popped up usually on different travel shows. I mean, Anthony Bourdain went there in his Nashville uh, episode two as well. So it's a really cool concept. It's above the Patterson house, which is this kind of elevated cocktail bar uh, that's right below it. And, you know, that place opened first. It was like, I think about 2009 when and Haberger opened that too as well ironically so it's got a decent amount of history it's a super important restaurant maybe it's not at the height where everybody name recognizes you know something like the french laundry but it's in that next tier down where it's helped revolutionize you know a city's food scene it was the first tasty menu restaurant in nashville it's really helped kind of push nashville to the to the food heights that it is today where it's kind of seen as almost like a foodie city it's a foodie destination a place that you want to go there's Numerous restaurants. I mean, I've been there, you know, once recently, a couple times before, but that was kind of before I really got into food. And, you know, even just the recent time that we went there, there's there's five, six great restaurants that we ate at throughout, you know, our stay. And, and there's a whole bunch, there's a whole list that I have of places that we just never even got to because of whether they were closed because of COVID or they altered their concept, you know, to more takeout friendly or something like that because of COVID or if they just weren't open because of the tornado that they suffered a little while back too as well. So, Nashville is just kind of this melting pot of of everything now. It's not just, you know, really a country music city. It's become a lot of other benefactors uh, have come its way. So whether it's the income tax stuff or the food scene or just kind of the weather and, and everything like that, there's a lot of people that are flocking to there and, and Austin in particular. But usually what happens with the Catbird Seat is a chef is usually there for about like two years. It's kind of a stepping stone before they launch their own restaurant. Baxter has been there for coming up on about like... I mean, technically it would be a year in June, I think is kind of when he was announced as the fifth chef, but they didn't reopen until August of 2020. So he's still got a, a bunch of time and we kind of get into that and, you know, obviously go through kind of how he got started, you know, as a chef and his career and influences and everything. You know, he worked with Sean Brock for a while, went to the Culinary Institute of America, you know, moved to Atlanta and, and helped open a restaurant, then kind of ran into COVID. I mean, he worked at Bastion for a little bit before that. And after COVID, kind of how the opportunity with the Catbird Sea came about and everything. And also, you know, he's a pretty big painter. He does a lot of painting, which is he's self-deprecating as, as most of us are and doesn't think, you know, highly of his paintings or anything like that. But if you go on the Instagram account, like some of them are really, really good. And it's been years since I've done anything with watercolor. You know, I mean, I was a kid, but watercolor is super hard because it just kind of bleeds into everything else. So you have to be really, really just like patient and talented and just mindful of focused on kind of what you're exactly doing in that moment in order to make something even come out relatively good using watercolor. And the stuff that he posts, I mean, that I've seen him post on Instagram, some of it's it's just flat out, just like really, really impressive. So check that out. You know, you can follow him on Instagram. It's at Baxter. So B-A-X-T-E-R-D at B Baxter Art. So B-B-A-X-T-E-R-A-R-T for the kind of watercolor painting account and then at the catbird seat. Uh, the catbird seat, they change over their Instagram whenever there's a new chef. They kind of delete all the old posts and then go into the new one. So they're not super, super active um, on Instagram or anything, but you do catch some stuff here and there. And, and when you do, it's usually pretty impressive. So uh, we kind of get into, you know, everything. And the podcast itself is about an hour. Uh, I think we originally recorded like an hour and a half. We had a couple different uh, points where just kind of dropped out because of the internet connection, because we were doing it remotely because of COVID. But the only part of information that's missing when, when Baxter gets into kind of how he got into watercolor and everything, the artist that he's referring to that he takes lessons with uh, is a guy by the name of Todd Saul, uh, who was an 
artist in New York City. And I think his wife's career somehow wound up in Nashville. So that's how he wound up in Nashville. And they wound up linking up. So just for reference, when you get to that point in the podcast, I think it's about like a half hour in, maybe like halfway or so, just because it's it's not, he mentioned it, but he dropped out. And that part was like the only little snippet of information that uh, we didn't get uh, just due to the connection, but everything else is there. And it's a really cool podcast. He's a really awesome dude. Awesome food that they're doing down there. So if you've never had a chance to get to the catbird seat or it's something that you thought about doing, highly recommend it. It's super casual. You just kind of come as you are, but they do really elevated food and they're always kind of tinkering with the menu too as well. And, and he gets in all that stuff too. So about an hour long with uh, Chef Brian Baxter of the catbird seat. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Taking some time out to come on the podcast. Normally kind of what we do kind of first half of the podcast is usually kind of going through your culinary career this far, how you got into cooking, like all that stuff. And then there's some other questions at the end. But I think before we get into all that, I don't know if the people want to know, but I was, or I still am a, a Patriots fan. So we got to enjoy Tom Brady for about 20 years. And then he went to your favorite team, the Tampa Bay Bucks. Yeah. And how was that, I guess, you know, journey for you guys, you know, obviously you won the Super Bowl and everything. Were you excited when he signed? Did you were like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen here? Or? I think after uh, five years with Jameis Winston, I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was definitely excited. I mean, I've never, I'm not one of those guys who like hated Tom Brady. We didn't really play him much. So, you know, it didn't, didn't matter to me. It's not like a Drew Brees thing where you're like, you know, sick of losing to him. But yeah, you know, they added a couple pieces, but I think it kind of proved like how close they really were. Uh, and after those two losses, you know, to the uh, the Saints and just kind of see Jameis on the sideline, it felt good to beat him in the playoffs, even though I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had, I had, you know, I was pretty nervous every game. But uh, they're, they're my favorite sports team. You know, I got a Bucko Bruce tattoo and I got the pirate flag tattoo. So to see them win and to see the Lightning win, those were huge for me. The Rays were close, but the Rays were close, uh, you know, for a team that won't spend any money. They have the worst probably owner in sports. But uh, yeah, it just sucks. It's like the year that you can't go watch any of the games. You know, we go back and win two championships. So on a normal year, do you get to go to like one Bucks game a year or something like that? The, the last two years, yes, because they played they played here and lost by like three. And then um, the year they started out two and oh or three and oh. I flew down and went to a Monday night game against Pittsburgh with my dad and they lost. So I haven't gotten to see them win in person since I was a kid. So, you know, this would have been the year, but yeah, I don't know what their schedule is next year, but yeah, I think they don't, they won't play Tennessee up here again for a while. And then it's cool now that the lightning are in the same division as the Preds, but it's very limited on how many people can go. And we just had a baby. So I'm not really getting out of the house. Yeah. I'd say probably like the next closest market would probably be Atlanta. If they ever played like the Falcons or something like that. Yeah. So we'll always play a home and away there. So I could drive down to Atlanta, Yeah, you know, for that, which isn't a bad, you know, three and a half hours. And I have friends down there still. So yeah, it's possible. We'll see what happens this year. If things open back up or. Right. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll get it. You know, I got a chance to eat at the Catbird Seat a couple months ago. I uh, had a fantastic experience. It was awesome. And that's kind of why I wanted to reach out and have you on the podcast and everything. But we'll start, you know, you're from St. Petersburg, Florida. But how did you kind of get into cooking? Was that something that was just family oriented when you were growing up or just kind of first job and fell into it? You know, my mom says that I was always messing around in the kitchen because she she ran a daycare out of our house for like the first probably three or four years. I was the only child until I was 10. So there wasn't much going around. You know, I just kind of had to find a way to play with something. Uh, I don't, I don't really think that's why I started cooking, you know, probably I would say eighth or ninth grade. I started, you know, I would come home and flip the TV on and Emerald was like, had just kind of gotten really big with food network. Uh, and I think food network was finally starting to grow and I would just put, Emerald on in the background when I was supposed to be doing homework and, you know, pay more attention to that. So I watched Emerald like every day until I graduated probably. And then, you know, the original Iron Chef every Friday or Saturday night, you know, whatever it was, if I didn't have a football game, you know, I was watching. So I think that's kind of where this, like, obviously I always love to eat, but this passion for like watching people create kind of sparked something. So, you know, right around my sophomore year, I started messing around in the kitchen uh, and my grandma, she, 
she cooked dinner for us almost every night because we moved in with her when I was 10. And uh, she would get so mad because I would leave just like the biggest mess. You know, I'd use 30 different pans to make like this emerald recipe, you know. So, um, but I was going to try to play, you know, played football for 12 years. And that kind of, you know, out of high school and played football. And that was kind of a deciding factor where I went was a school that had some kind of program. Yeah, you went up to West Virginia to, to play college football, right? Yeah, so I played at a school called West Virginia Tech, which is in Montgomery, um, not far out of like where Greenbrier is. So they had an associate program through part of the tech school, um, and you could you would do your internship at Greenbrier. So that was the goal, play football four years, get free education, get a little bit of experience at Greenbrier, and then figure it out from there. After my first year, just wasn't like... I transferred to a school in Florida that had uh, their main focus was um, hospitality because they were they were right outside of Orlando. Um, and I had applied to CIA because I knew I always loved New York. Like since I had been you know traveled there in like ninth grade, and I was like, I'm just going to apply and did everything. Never heard back, so I applied to La Cordon Bleu, and of course they responded and were like, Hey, you have to you know if you don't start the next block, we can't promise you that you'll ever be able to get back in. I was like, Oh man, so I. Have, you know, like literally this decision of a sport that I love and have played for 12 years and my career, you know, football probably wasn't going to be my career at this point. So pack my stuff up, you know, kind of left. I didn't want to tell my dad because I thought he would be either angry or disappointed. But, you know, obviously when the coach called and was like, hey, we can't find your son, <laughs> uh, he found out. So, you know, the conversation we had and he's like, you know, uh, whatever you do, I just want you to be happy. So that made it easier. I started at the court on blue and Sure enough, six weeks later, I got accepted to the Culinary Institute of America. Did you do any cooking or anything while you were at West Virginia Tech? They didn't have any positions available in any of the kitchens. So I was a dishwasher in the cafeteria because I was the closest I could get to kind of watching what was going on there. But, you know, I wouldn't say I really learned anything. I just washed a ton of dishes. Before I went to CIA, I had to, you had to have at least six months experience cooking. So I moved back to St. Petersburg and worked at a restaurant called The Wine Cellar, uh, which is no longer there. And I had worked there in high school. The only job they would give me was a food runner. So my junior and senior year, I was a food runner there. But I got to work really closely with the chefs in the mornings and you know learned a lot of just kind of organizational fit. Like I didn't know anything going into it, just kind of what I had learned in those first like skills one and two classes at Le Cordon Bleu. But they were just, you know, the restaurant was busy. The There's tons of off-site catering. They had a banquet hall, like, in the restaurant. So to kind of, like, see a lot of organizational stuff, I think, kind of what I learned there. Um, but I didn't have a ton of experience moving to New York. When you were at Le Cordon Bleu, did you like it? Or was it just kind of like, I got to do this so I can get into the CIA? Well, I didn't. At that point, I didn't think I was going to get in. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Um you know, I had a lot of friends I went to high school with and stuff that lived in Orlando, which also wasn't a good thing because like, you know, we would stay up too late every night. So it was good for me to kind of get away. And I always wanted to move, you know, that's as soon as I turned 18, I was like, I have to leave Florida. I need seasons. I need to experience winter, a real spring, not like a spring that lasts two weeks. So that's kind of why, you know, I made a decision just and you're young and you don't, you know. I wasn't thinking about financials or anything. I was just like, yeah, New York, I, I have to be there. So what were like the main differences between like your time at Le Cordon Bleu and then like at the CIA where was there anything noticeable or was it just kind of like, yeah, it's culinary school. Obviously Le Cordon Bleu, I think it's much easier to get into. You know, it's kind of one of those programs where they try to crank you out. For me, you get out of it what you put into it. So you could go to any program. Sure, you may have a better chef or somebody who, I don't want to say they care more, but maybe they take it more serious or have more experience in a different school. But the information is all the same. Not that anybody really looks at culinary degrees, I don't think, anymore. But, you know, CIA versus Le Cordon Bleu obviously holds a little more weight to it. Yeah. So so would you recommend anybody, like if somebody came to you and they were, you know, like, I want to be a chef one day, would you recommend they go to culinary school or would you recommend that to like anyone in your kitchen currently? Or do you think hands-on experiences is more valuable? I think it depends. Um, you know, I have two guys that work for me now that haven't gone to culinary school. One, you know, kind of worked with me at Husk. He went over to Bastion before I had joined them. Um, you know, he's bounced around, gotten some good experience. And then most recently joined me from Smith. Um, so, you know, he just has great work ethic. 
somebody who needs some kind of motivation might need to go to culinary school. Like if you're not dedicated enough to learn the basics on your own and do all the reading, I think you should go. Uh, you know, we had a girl who was working with us who had zero experience just prepping with us. We told her like the same thing, like we can teach you what you need to know, or you can go to culinary school, or you can work your way through different restaurants and pick up knowledge that way. You know, as long as you're willing to put the work in and accept, you can gather that. So honestly, if I feel like it's up to the individual. I, I don't regret going, obviously, like it was super expensive, especially the first down payment at Cordon Bleu and then CIA right after. But I, I do think I learned a lot of things, you know, and I still apply all those techniques that I learned. It, it's repetition that, the, you know, like here, somebody's not going to make a bechamel 20 times in two weeks because we don't use that sauce. But it, if you understand how to build these different sauces, then you could throw whatever you want in the pot, you know, so. That's a tough question. A lot of people ask that. And I, I think it's, you know, kind of just depends on the individual. If they, if they want to take on the debt and they think they need to and they want the degree, I say 100% support them. If they think they're dedicated enough to learn without, then, you know, that's the route they should go. I'm assuming you went through the uh, French kind of program at the CIA instead of like the Italian or the Asian. Yeah. So when I was there, uh, they didn't have those other options yet. The only decision you got to make was you put your name in for a lottery for the final. There's two restaurants at the end and you go to either uh, the Scoffier room, I think at the time. And uh, I can't remember. American Bounty was the other restaurant, which was like regional American. And I had already kind of cooked that because I had worked for Waldy Maloof in New York, who was doing kind of Hudson Valley regional American kind of steak focused stuff already. So I wanted to go classic French. I, I never had the money to travel to Europe, you know, to, to France or London or any of these places. And I really wanted to, I knew at the time that was the closest I would get to working in like a classic French kitchen, even though it was at school. Uh, so that's the route I went. You know. Then after you complete culinary school, you wind up going back to Orlando, right? You start at Blue Zoo? Yeah. So I went to Blue Zoo in Orlando, work with uh, Chris Windis. Um, I think I applied to the Ritz. And I think I failed the personality one based off of a couple of questions I answered. Like if you see a single mother stealing food, you know, to support her kids, do you report her? Do you tell her to put it back or do you cover for her? And I think I was like, tell her to put it back and give her money or I don't know something I answered, but I don't think they liked it. <laughs> was that normal to like get like a questionnaire like that? I think it's a Ritz Carlton thing. I don't think it. I don't think it was a Norman Norman Van Aken thing. I think it was okay. to work for the Ritz Carlton. You have to, but it worked out. So, worked for uh, you know Chef Windus over at uh, Blue Zoo, which obviously was a Todd English restaurant. So then I got to kind of work with Todd when he was he was in town every once in a while. But we did a lot more events with him, I think, than most of his restaurants, at least in Florida, it seemed like. So you know, I got to go do food and wine with him at Epcot every year. And we got to go to Boston and do a dinner for Louis Vuitton one, one year, which was fun. Um, but just like being able to like work with him, like I feel like, you know, I had a chef tell me while I was at the restaurant that worked in another department in the hotel. And he was like, you know, no matter where you work, you can learn something. You can learn how you want to do something or how you don't want to do something. You know, so he's like, no matter where you are at every job, just make sure you're learning. So, you know. Not that Todd and I ever really cooked together because it was kind of like he would come in and be like, what are we doing? And you'd tell him and he'd be like, oh, okay. And then he would do something completely different like in the demo, you know? And I asked him one time and I was like, you know, what's, uh, I noticed, you know, we were going to do this. And he's like, yeah. He's like, you know, if you go in with a set plan and something goes wrong, he's like, then it will, you know, kind of disrupt your train of thought and it can throw everything off. He's like, so I like to just come in with like an idea and kind of react. So I've, kind of ever since then, like everything I've done has been like reactionary, you know, like I've noticed anytime I have this, like this dish is going to be so sick. Like I can't wait. Like it, it's going to be awesome. I, there's no doubt about it. And I test it out and I'm like, it's one of the worst things I've ever made, <laughs> you know? So if I, if I just, you know, approach it now, like this is the, this is the ingredient I want to highlight. This is another ingredient I think will be good with it. Maybe I throw a third one in there and then from there, I can play around because, you know, it's defeating sometimes if you have this amazing idea and it's terrible. So I learned that from work with him. When you, and then you were, you started like staging at other restaurants on your days off, right? Yeah. So um, the only place I could really get a hold of that would let me come and stage was Norman. Um, and I know, the sh I can't remember their names, but there was like the head chef at the time and maybe a sous chef had worked together at French Laundry. And they just did things so much different there. 
you know, like little things like uh, having two cutting boards for shallots or onions or anything like that, where you would peel them on one and transfer them to the other, you know, just working clean, like much more organized. And it was just a completely different style of food. But going and seeing that, you know, it's like you, you pick up on these little things from other kitchens, you're able to kind of take them back and, you know, not that it was my kitchen to do this to, but at least in your station, you can learn better ways to be more organized or uh, cleaner, quicker, efficient. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's kind of what I learned doing that. And then, um, you know, probably I don't want to jump ahead here for you, but around year three, I was promoted to like a junior sous chef position and I had been married at the time. and had saved up a lot of vacation and PTO because I was working so much. We had started, you know, we we had separated. So I was just work, 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 party, 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 party. That's all I did. And, you know, I had what ended up being four weeks worth of PTO to burn up. So I, uh, you know, I talked to Windis and I was like, hey, I really want to go stage in New York. I have a friend who's like set me up at Poulet. He's like, well, is there anywhere else you want to stage? And I was like, I don't know. You know, we had eaten at uh, Marea while we were up there for Star Chef the previous year. And I was like, you know, it could be cool. I don't know much about Italian food. So he sent me up for, you know, my fourth week to go stage there. And the, the goal really was now that I didn't have anything keeping me in Florida was to get back to where I wanted to be, to cook at a Michelin level and a Michelin restaurant in New York City. So stage at Boulay for three weeks at Maria for a week. You know, I had a job offer from both. I, I love everything about David Boulay and that kitchen. It was like, you know, they had obviously a bigger staff than anywhere I've ever worked, but it wasn't like so big, like the Maria kitchen where you have three or four people on one station just cranking out like 200 covers. I mean, these guys were, they were cooking, they were busy. It was like exciting, you know, um, Chef Boulay would just show up like at 4.30 with like fresh cod that he went and got like, He's like, it's still in rigor mortis, like jamming it in everybody's face. I'm like, this is going on the menu tonight. And everybody come up with a dish, you know, it's like, what the heck, this guy's a crazy person. But I was exposed to different ingredients I had never seen before, a lot of, you know, different Japanese ingredients. And he was applying them all to these classic French techniques and dishes. And it just like blew my mind at the time. So I wanted to work there like just so bad. But after kind of maybe the only really smart financial decision I've ever made was looking at this room my buddy had for me in Bedford or Williamsburg, like first stop, how much I was going to get paid and then how I was going to get to work or do anything else. And I was like, there's absolutely no way. I, you know, I'd have to ride a bike to work no matter what the weather was like. So I decided not to move up there. But as soon as I got back from New York, uh, Jeremiah uh, Langern from the Dabney currently, uh, he was still CDC at McCready's, had posted that he was hiring. So I was like, hey, McCready's is hiring. And, and uh, I was like, you know, I don't have any PTO left, but would you mind if I went to stage this weekend, you know, on my day off? And uh, he was like, if I let you go stage again, you better come back with a job. I said, okay. To kind of jump backwards a little bit, the first time I staged at McCready's was probably in like 2000, oh man, 2008, 2009. I was only out of culinary school like a year or two. And it was like, nothing went right for me. You know, I like cut myself as soon as I got in there. But the first day I was just, you know, doing what I could to keep up, kind of helping Jeremiah at the time. He was um, a chef at the party. So I was helping him on the fish station and I'm helping them plate. And then, you know, Sean was like, he's like, see what you're doing. You're covering everything up. Make sure you don't do that. She's like, oh, yeah, chef. You know, the second day, Sean was doing like an art culinary shoot. Um, and he's like going to have me prep all this different stuff, you know? So they're like, just make a laurel tea. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, I'm looking around like, I don't you know, what's the laurel? I don't know trying to make this olive oil pudding that only Jeremiah had made before, but he was actually off that day. And I broke it, I swear, four times. And I like had to keep going to Sean and asking him. And it's just like, oh my God, I don't know. I'm following the recipe. These are the eggs I've been given. You know, it's like five eggs per recipe. So I had like blown through all this person's like what I thought were the right eggs, but then come to find out that Dano wouldn't give me the right eggs. They sent me to the other people, which were the wrong eggs. And it's just a, it's a thing. I still tell him that story and I don't think he remembers it, but he still thinks it's funny. Uh, went up at stage, got the job at McCready's and uh, moved there in 2011, November of 2011. So that was kind of like your first experience with like Southern style cuisine, really? Because I mean, Sean's like notorious for, you know, local Appalachian food, you know, just all these different rices and grains and stuff that you can't really find anywhere else. Was that kind of like your first experience with, with stuff like that? A hundred percent. Well, you know, I mean... Windows did a good job about sourcing local stuff in Florida. Uh, there's 
a couple of farms that we work with pretty closely. It was like Pasture Prime, Wagyu, who did like all of our poultry and beef and um, Hammock Hollows, which did some really nice produce. I'm pretty sure they were from like North Florida. As far as grains, 100%. Uh, you know, when I first moved to Mercedes, I thought we were going to be doing this like molecular cuisine because that's what Sean was known for. But when he kind of had that epiphany to focus on Southern food, you know, we showed up and it was, it was just like completely different than what I thought, but definitely learned. I think the most important thing as far as cooking goes that I learned from Sean was definitely grains, like respecting grains. I can't tell you how many times like you have or I've had like just beans or rice or something that's just, just not cooked properly. And I remember seeing those not cooked properly and what had happened. Just like, man. You know, a good story about me cooking Seattle and red peas for the first time. You know, I cooked them and tasted them and I thought they were cooked, strain them through a china cap and we would fold like butter and salt and stuff into it and let it cool at room temperature. And then once it kind of settled to room temperature, you pop in the walk-in so they don't like seize up too much. So Sean comes in, he's walking around and my buddy Andrew, like we're prepping, he's like, Sean's going through your beans right now. And I was just like, oh man. So I'm there like, you know, prepping, prepping. He's like, who cooked these? And I was like, gosh. So I walk over and I'm like, uh, did chef, he's like, they're a little undercooked. You know, he's like the perfect point in like a bean being cooked, you should be able to smash it and it should be creamy, but should still hold its shape. He's like, you can see these are still, you know, some of them are cooked, but most of them are still starchy. He's like, where's your pot liquor? And I was like, um, well, I strained it. He's like, where'd you put it? And it's like, well, I strained it into the sink. And he just looked at me and he's like, always save your pot liquor and walked away. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of try to make a quick, I use veg stock, I think, and brulee and onion and stuff. And get the beans back in it. And while I'm like doing all this stuff, I can hear I'm talking to the head of the meat station. <laughs> the head of the meat station. He's like, why Why do you throw away his pollock? Or, you know, why didn't anybody tell him to save the pot? You know, just started ripping him. And I was like, man, I'm so sorry, dude. So it's like one of those lessons, you know, and see someone try to strain the pollock or, you know, I've jammed them up. and like, yo, always save the pollock. But I tell him the story. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think with any ingredients, just how he respects them. Obviously, the grains one thing we highlighted a lot there, but I mean, the way he treated farmers, supporting local farmers. I mean, it's just like if a farmer was struggling, it was like, I'd just have, you know, I got all these snoop, like we had this lady who brought us crabs all the time, but just bring us, bring us whatever you get, you know, we would, we'd find a way to use it. So, you know, I think I learned a lot about kind of just respect for ingredients and for the people growing them in my time with him. I mean, not just about Crady's, but even at Husk. So then how did you, how did like the opportunity to go to Nashville that come about? They were opening another location. So they were opening a, a second husk. Husk had done so well. There was a long line of people in front of me to become a, a sous chef in, you know, at McCready's. Um, and I didn't really like, I liked everybody I worked with. I didn't love the people in Charleston. I had friends and stuff. And like, I enjoyed Charleston. Like I had visited there a couple of times before moving there. Really love the area. I love going back. But when I first, so I asked Sean, you know, I did an event with him and we were the first time I'd been alone with him. And we had like a two hour drive to, um, you know, this piece called Music to Your Mouth, this event in South Carolina. And we're talking, talking, just like I was nervous the whole time because I was new. I had already mentioned I wanted it, but this is like my time to talk to him about like, you know, hey, I'd really like to talk to you about possibly being a sous chef in Nashville if you don't have anybody yet. so, you know, we had a good conversation then, and then he really just kind of watched me, I think, you know, for the next six months or however long. So that brought me to Nashville 2013. Uh, I think it was April 2013 we moved up here. It's just such a different vibe here because there were so many like like chefs and musicians, artists, tattoo artists, like entrepreneurs, just all these people that knew each other from going out or hanging out or you know, you meet one person that knows someone else and they know someone else, you know, it's just this giant network, but they're all very supportive of each other. And I was like, man, this is, this isn't old money, Charleston. This is, uh, you know, this is cool. So I fit in really well, really quick. And I've loved it here ever since. So then you wind up working at Husk in Nashville. Um, and then eventually I think you become like CDC, right? At, at Husk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can't, you know, maybe a, a year or so and promoted to CDC. But when Husk was opening, like that was a big deal, right? Like that was a pretty big deal in Nashville that like Sean Brock's opening a restaurant here, right? A hundred percent. I mean, it was obviously a lot of attention, a lot of attention on the restaurant, you know, obviously because of Sean's name, bringing it in. 
uh, there were already some great restaurants here, but I think he was the first kind of person that had left and made a name for himself and was coming back. So, I mean, you know, everybody in the FFA and food writers and all, all sorts of people coming in and out. Uh, so that's a lot, you know, even as a sous chef, you know, we, I experienced it at McCready's as a cook, but as a sous chef experiencing cooking for those people, you know, with Sean and, and kind of just learn a lot about like why certain things were said to you or why you were asked to do certain things a certain way. I think when you're cooking, I mean, it's a high level, you know, it's not a Michelin restaurant, but we're try, still trying to cook at a high level, you know, the, the uh, attention to detail and everything's still there. So you're just doing it at a super high volume. So uh, that was the, that was a big difference. And then like over the course of, you know, a couple of years there, like, then it's like, it goes to this other level. Cause you start, I think, you know, it's, Best new restaurant in America by like Esquire. I think you get to do some stuff for like Eater on YouTube. You get to film something. Um, and then you get named to all these lists like Southern Chefs to Watch, uh, Eater's list of, uh, I forget what they call it. I think it's like Young Guns or something like that. And then like a 30 under 30 did with all those like accolades kind of coming in and it's kind of your first CDC job. Did that change anything in terms of like pressure that you felt or, you know, style of cooking or did it just open other doors eventually for you? How did you kind of navigate kind of all this like attention for really the first time in your career? Yeah, I mean, it's the first time like PR had been a part of my life. You know, it's hard not to. I think at the end of the day, you got to remember to try to stay like humble. And there's times where you have you have to check yourself or you'll do something and it, it will check you. You know what I mean? And I think with all that happening, um, I had an ankle surgery in 2017 uh, and I was off my feet for three months during that time. I you know, decided not to come back to us, which wasn't my decision originally, but you know, I had time to kind of like look at what was going on, look at where I was in my career, look at what I wanted. And, you know, I wanted to do my own thing and not be under someone else's name. And I think, you know, I think it was a good decision, but I think also like if it weren't for Sean, I wouldn't have gotten to that point, if that makes sense. So um, not coming back was a good like reset for me. Like you're just a cook cooking food. You're, you know, just remember that. Like every, at the end of the day, you're, you're just cooking food. So Josh from Bastion had reached out to me. Uh, I took, you know, my wife in there, my new wife, current wife. <laughs> uh, and for her birthday, we were just dating at the time. And uh, he texted me the next morning. He's like, hey, you want to get some coffee sometime? I was like, yeah, sure. So we got together and he's like, you know, my guy that's been with me since I opened Bastion's leaving. And I'm looking at kind of creating this shift cuisine position. Uh, never really had one here, but, you know, I just feel like I need someone in here who's done it before and can kind of help manage so I can have a day off. You know, and he had never not been at the restaurant since it opened. So I thought about it and, you know, talked it over and I was like, yeah, I think this is this is what I want to do. It's kind of a step back into fine dining, which I really wanted to do, you know, like leaving McCready's and cooking at Husk was fun and be able to see you can do something at like a different level, still the attention to detail. But it's just mentally, I think it's mentally a lot when you don't have full control over everything, when you're trying to hold everybody to your standard. At Bastion, I'd be cooking five or six dishes of my own with one other person who would be helping me, not, you know, 10 dishes of my own with 16 people coming in and out, you know. So I think that was that was the next step. It was like a good first back. Yeah. And, you know, just it was just a good mental reset. You know, something I really needed, I think. I, I quit drinking back in what is it, 2021 now. So um, 2015. Yeah, so 2015, I decided to kind of live straight edge lifestyle. So, you know, that was also, I think, something that helped, you know, I had already kind of cleared my mind a bit that way, but just to be able to step away and just, just a mental reset I really needed, right? Yeah. So when you had the ankle surgery, you wind up just toughing it out and that's kind of how you start doing painting, right? Yeah, so I still have a lot of issues with it. Uh, it's kind of one of those things where I always played through the pain because I had such a high pain tolerance that I worked through it for seven years. And by the time I went to the doctor, he's like, this is bad. <laughs> but having not had anything in my system, except for maybe some ibuprofen or caffeine for two years, taking this medication mixed with just the pain, I had a really hard time sleeping. And the only only thing that would help me fall asleep was they had just put Bob Ross on Netflix. And I, you know, I used to watch him as a kid back in Florida and, you know, when I was literally be on PBS and I, when I was really little, just loved watching it. 
my mom would never let me get oil paints, you know, because they're so messy. So I never got to play with them. And I was finally like, you know what? I had been watching him for like a month and I was like, he says anyone can do it. So I'm going to do it. So I bought all the stuff. And once I was able to stand up, I started like just painting along with him. And it was like this really good release or outlet. outlet. Yeah. I mean, because not being able to go to the gym and, you know, not having any other sort of kind of just mental release. Um, it was big for me. So then winter came. And I it, Once I got to the point where I could start just kind of trying to play around and paint outside because it was literally just splattering oil paints everywhere, uh, especially when you, you know, beat your brush. It started to get too cold uh, to paint on the patio. So I was like, I got these watercolors. I'm going to start messing around with that. There's like, I mean, talk about going from like one extreme to the next. And one of them you're painting dark to light. And then now you're painting light to dark. Neither of them react the same watercolor. You can understand what it's doing, but you can't always control what it's doing. You know, a lot of people are like, you should just paint acrylics. And once you get that down, then you should choose a medium. And I was like, no, that's not how I do it. I'm going to go for it. So kind of during that time of, you know, the style of watercolor I wanted to do. So I just reached out to him and I was like, hey, you know, we kind of chatted a bit. And I was like, do you ever do any workshops or like lessons or anything? And he's like, yeah, you know, this is what I do. This is my fee. This is this, this is this. So we get together the first time and I think I paid for like an eight hour. Um, at this point, I'm already working again and moving around and stuff. So we go out and he does all mostly plain air painting, you know, so everything's outside. So we go out to Bear Creek Farms and um, they have a lot of like just beautiful landscape there. So just start to the beginning with like, this is watercolor, this is pencil, this is brush. You know, we start at the beginning and worked our way through. But throughout chatting about all that, he's like, oh, you know, I grew up in New York. Uh, I was touring musician for a while and I worked my way up through kitchen. Then we started talking about food and people he knew and places he worked and kind of had this interest of like, obviously love for culinary music and then art. And he had, he had quit his professional job and was like, you know, I'm going to be doing art full time. So kind of through that first lesson, I did another like short lesson with him. And then one time I was just like, Hey, can I come out and paint with you sometime? You know? So I went out and did a plein air painting with him and he was giving me little pointers, you know, throughout the whole process. And, you know, the elements are in full control when you're painting outside. So my, my easel blew away. My painting was over the, you know, but it was fun. And I was like, man, this is nice because I don't really get out and go foraging like I did when I was in Charleston with Jeremiah. So it's nice to just be outside again and not inside a restaurant with no windows, you know, 12 hours a day. And uh, kind of through that, we became close. And he, you know, has since become more like a mentor to me and kind of gives me lessons, you know, and he, he does the artwork for the menu here at the restaurant and did a lot of beautiful watercolor paintings that are in the hallway when you first walk in. But yeah, so I've just like fell in love with watercolor. Like once it started clicking, even though they don't look good, like when things start clicking, you're like, oh man, this is awesome. But it's tough because it's like, you know, the first time maybe you try to make like a terrine or a pate or something and it doesn't come out quite right. It's I'm relearning something totally new. And it's frustrating because it's supposed to be an outlet, but I'm determined for all my paintings to look a certain way. So now I'm trying to like, try to remember, like, it's not cooking. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, it's just, you've only been really doing it for two years. And I took a year off when we had our first kid. So I wish I had more time for it, but it's it's just like a, it's just a nice, nice release. And it's fun. What do you do with the paintings that you finished? Like, do you just have like an attic that's just full of all your paintings or <laughs> Yeah, I have a stack of paintings. I have a stack of some that are just terrible that I'll just like use the back of for something. Um, sometimes people like reach out and be like, hey, can I buy this? Or, you know, I've had a couple of people reach out and be like, hey, can you paint this for me? It's harder to do those things because I don't feel like I'm at like like a really good level yet. So I feel like I'm never happy with a painting, right? Like some of them will be like, there's good things about it, but I'm never like fully satisfied with it. So it's hard to like sell somebody something that they want, but when they think it's amazing or they love it, then, you know, it's like, all right, cool. You know, at least you like it. Obviously there's things I would change about it, but I won't tell them that, you know? Yeah. That's just your competitive nature. Yeah. Oh man. I can't get rid of it. But that's cool that people actually like reach out and that's pretty awesome. So then you're, you're at Bastion for a while and then you go to Atlanta, right? Cause you help open cold beer. Yeah. So I met, yeah, with Kevin Gillespie, I met Kevin when we were nominated for Best New Restaurant uh, in GQ magazine. So it was like seven restaurants or so maybe were nominated. We went up to Brooklyn. I uh, can't remember the restaurant owner's name, but this like amazing old jazz club in Harlem that he like redid. It um, had a restaurant attached to it. It's like just, I mean, beautiful space. 
I love old like 40s and 50s jazz. So it's cool to like go in there and have this big dinner and like, uh, you know, someone singing that sounded like Ella Fitzgerald. It was, it was incredible. Um, but that's when I met Kevin. And then one of the nights, Sean had an early flight. So he was like, I'm going to go home, but you know, go have fun or whatever. So uh, we did the event and then everybody kind of left. And the only people standing there was Kevin and Joey. And you're like, you need to ride back to the hotel with us? I was like, yeah, sure. So go back, drop the stuff off, and then kind of did a late night tour of New York till probably four in the morning with the two of them, which was fun. Uh, and then Kevin and I kind of just kept in touch after that. Uh, I went down and cooked a gun show for like a hired guns dinner in 2017. Um, and then we had kind of chatted a bit, like when he found out Joey was leaving gun show, he's like, you know, I'm going to need to replace him. We're, you know, kind of threw the idea out there. And I was like, well, I just started at Bastion. I'm not ready to leave. Uh, but after being at Bastion for about two years, he reached back out and said, hey, I'm opening this restaurant. Do you want to come check it out? And I said, let me talk to Michaela about it. And then, you know, we found out that we were having our first kid. Her sister and their kids lived down there. So we're like, it could be cool to, you know, have some family with kids around. So we go look at the restaurant, decide that it's, it's the right decision and move down in May of 2019. Uh, so I'm coming from a 24 seat restaurant to a restaurant that has 130 plus seats downstairs and another 100 and something upstairs plus patio plus a beer garden. So, I mean, you could probably fill that thing with 500 people. So it was an adjustment. Was that the most like difficult menu development that you've done so far? Cause wasn't the whole concept that it was like cocktails paired with the ingredients that were used in the dishes? Yeah. So it was definitely a different way of approaching a menu because I worked closely with Mercedes O'Brien, the bar manager, and it was kind of back and forth. Like she would be like, Hey, what cocktail ideas are some dishes I have an idea for? And we kind of were able to create this menu with 15 drink, you know, 15 cocktails, 15 beers, and 15 dishes. And each one had something that would go with it. And I think the plan was that people would come in off the belt line, which is just walk cuts through the city, would walk through and um, sometimes drink their way down or, or whatever it might be, you know. And then the idea was for, because they're big tables, because most people traveled in groups, you know, table of five, six, eight, ten, whatever, come in and order, you know, pretty much the whole menu one, two, three times over. and they weren't exactly ordering that way. You know, some people would and some people wouldn't. They come in and get like, oh, I'm going to get a, this appetizer. And we're like, well, you know, it's really meant to be shared. Nothing's really big. So after the first couple of months, we realized like, hey, we got to throw some like the dishes, the heavier dishes need to be bigger portions so we can charge more. And people didn't blink an eye at it. They would still come in and order like one of these and then the Duck Wellington or this, you know, the ticket price just went up. So as soon as we kind of like start to get everything cruising, we get through winter, the patio's closed, spring's coming, and March 13th kind of happened. So um, shut the restaurant down on the 17th, and there, you know, everybody knows that story for the restaurant. So how did, you know, with that happening, COVID starting, how did Catbird Seat come about? Because, I mean, I know... Uh, the previous chefs, uh, they wound up kind of leaving earlier than what most chefs do. Usually it's like a two year kind of almost residency. And um, I think they were only like a year in before mm -hmm. they wound up leaving. So how did like that opportunity kind of come your way? Josh, the owner of Bastion, which is in the same restaurant group. And we, you know, he came down and he had dinner and uh, he and his wife and me and my wife went to uh, we went to Staple House. And, you know, I was just telling him I'm you know, I did miss Nashville. And obviously, my goal was to give Kevin two years, no matter what. But a couple of months after that, I guess it must have been, must have been around February, or it was probably February or March. He's like, hey, you know, would you ever think about coming back to Nashville? And I was like, yeah. So, you know, we kind of started this dialogue. And the goal was, I think, you know, January of whatever that two year mark was to try to get back up there. And, you know, obviously, things sped up a bit. So they're like, hey, this position is open now, you know, it's still something you're interested in. And, you know, I had a good call with Kevin about the opportunity. And we talked a lot about the changes that were going to be happening within, you know, Redbeard restaurants and the direction cold beer was probably going to be taking for the next year just to be able to get through quarantine. And, you know, it was a really good talk of he wished me the best and said he thought it was a great opportunity, you know, no hard feelings. And uh, it ended up being a really good decision, I think. You know, I told I told my wife, it's like, it's a restaurant I've really like always wanted to work at just because being in Nashville, loving Nashville, knowing what it's done for people and their careers and just the like the level of chefs that have worked here to challenge myself. Can I cook at that level? You know, can I run a restaurant at that level? Um, so it was obviously like a really exciting time. 
it's just like the greatest opportunity at the most inopportune time, you know. Since it was something that you always kind of maybe, I don't know, dreamt about like, yeah, that'd be cool to to be at the catbird seat. Or did you always kind of have like a, a loose like menu in your mind? Like if I ever got an opportunity to do something like that, I would probably do something like this. Or did you just have to completely like once you got the opportunity, just start menu development like from scratch? Because you're the first kind of Southern style chef really to to be at the Capron seat. Yeah. So that's, I think this is the first time that I've been able to figure out what I want to do and have full control of it, you know? So it's hard not to look back at like the resumes of all the people that have been chefs here and see what kind of food they were doing. And I struggled a lot at first with like Josh and Eric worked in fine dining restaurant and had their style. Trevor worked at Noma, had his style. Ryan worked at all of these amazing restaurants and, you know, Michelin restaurants and Noma and French Laundry and had his style. Will and Liz worked at all these amazing restaurants, had their style. And it's like, what is my style? You know, people, people are going to come in and compare what I do to the rest of them, no matter what, no matter how different or how similar it is, you know, and it, it's obviously, it was a big change from Ryan to, to Will and Liz. And it's a big change from Will and Liz to my food, you know, just, you really have to look at it as like a completely different restaurant every two years, because it can be whatever you, I could serve cheeseburgers in here if I wanted to, you know, so I kind of had to just say like, this is what we're going to do. And it's hard because like, this is a, it's an industry where people are going to judge your food. Everybody's a critic, right? Everybody's going to have something to say, no matter what. So cook what you want, try to make it as delicious as possible. And this is your interpretation of how it's supposed to be served. If somebody thinks it needs more lemon or whatever, like that's fine. That's their palate. But this is how I think it's supposed to be served. I'm tasting everything. I'm touching everything. You know, it's a very small staff. And once I kind of was okay with that, I think it was easier for me to write the menu. And it's been easier each season to kind of start, you know, realizing what we can do in the space and, you know, what we can get away with or different things like that. I really like to cook things all in minute. So it's, it's pretty hectic, you know, like every dish for the most part, except for a couple or like, you know, you're cooking at least one, if not everything on the dish, like, and we only have four burners. So, you know, just pots and pans everywhere. Um, but that's kind of like applying what I learned from Todd English. Um, this is what we got. So just wing it, you know, uh, you know, I'll be like, Hey, this dish is going on the menu tonight. I don't really know what else is going in it, but this is what I got so far. So we'll, we'll taste it. And then the first service is usually rough and I'm sure the guys hate it. But if I have this dish, I think it's incredible and I like it. And, 50% of the people don't like it, then it's not a good dish. So that allows us to be able to make these changes throughout service. If, you know, we clear the first four or five and you're like, yeah, it was all right. And, you know, I feel like it needs this or that, you know, like it's okay to get feedback from people. But I think another kind of goal with coming in here, it's like, all right, just cook your own food, cook what you think is going to be good. But most importantly, like with everything that's going on in the world right now and in the country, like, just to be able to give people an escape from the outside world for two and a half or three hours where they can just come in here, have a good time, relax, and just forget about all the negativity. You know, that that's been like the biggest goal. And I feel like we've been able to been able to do that and give people that, you know, so it's a balance of wanting to show what I can do, but also just just give people something that they can relate to. Looking kind of back on it, because you guys, I think, reopened at like half capacity because of COVID and distancing and all that stuff. Was that more helpful when you guys first start getting rolling that it's you have less people? So you, or was it a little bit of a hindrance because you have less feedback from less diners per night? 100%. It's definitely more helpful. Um, just some of the nights that we've, we have had with like you know, some people just, it's their first time out in a year and they don't want to get up, but the people have been waiting downstairs for 25 minutes, you know, like having to do that with 50% been a lot easier than having to deal that with a full dining room. But yeah, it allows you to get your footing and just because of the way the place is set up until it's safe enough for restaurants to be at hundred percent capacity with no social distancing, we can't, you know, we really can't go above 50%, just what it is. And I don't want the guys to get too comfortable, but I think we're at the point now where like Wednesdays are rough because I'm going to change one dish no matter what every Wednesday, you know, we could easily add six people here, six people here, six people, you know, so yeah, blessing in disguise. Fortunately, we haven't had any issues here, but you're still navigating running a restaurant in close quarters with people during a pandemic. So um, it's got its own challenges, even being at 50%. How do you decide which one it is? Or is it just like, this one's been on the menu for a little bit. I want to pull this one off and just do something else. Or is it just, I don't really like that one anymore. Feedback or? It's a mix of things. Um, 
I get bored really quickly. One of them, you know, if we only have strawberries for a week, depending on how that year went, then we got to find a way to either preserve a ton of them or change a dish. So a dish might not a hundred percent change, but components might change. Um, which is easier for desserts or like the, obviously like the fish changing is one thing like, Hey, golden tile is not very good this week. I got red snapper, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's, I don't ever want to keep a dish on a menu and I don't know that I want to bring one back that people love just to bring it back, but the, the donut will never come off, but it changes seasonally. It's just, we had such like people just loved it so much that, you know, I've decided like it, it'll just always be there and you know, whatever gets folded into the, the filling, whatever fruit or whatever we decide, whatever the glaze is will change. I don't know. Like I, I mainly get bored with the dishes I'm cooking and plating faster than the other one. And we had menu with 18 courses on the second turn. So the late seating, uh, and that allows us to kind of any other ideas I have that there's no room for on the regular menu, go on there. And then if some, if we really like something, then we'll put it on the regular menu and that opens up the space for us to keep replacing that extended course, you know? So, so you change kind of like, the whole like theme, like every with the seasons, so like roughly like four times a year is the plan. Kind of obviously you're changing stuff mm-hmm. within there, but so it'll go from yeah. like winter and spring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Obviously, it's tough to be like, hey, this is exactly when we're changing it because it's kind of you don't know. The seasons kind of control themselves, you know. So um, summer may go later, winter may go later, winter may come early. You know, it's just kind of we do the best we can. Another thing that's kind of, you know, like I said, working with Sean, you know, this respect for farmers is we've, they struggled a lot. You know, I had a close relationship with a lot of these farmers for being here for so long and uh, coming back, you know, as restaurants, not every restaurant was able to reopen or maybe wasn't opening yet. And it's like, I have so much pumpkin. I have so much tomato. I have so much of this, like throwing stuff away. So we just started buying all the extra stuff from different farmers of like certain things. You're like, all right, we'll take five pounds. He's like, I got 25. And I was like, all right, we'll take 25 just to support them, you know? Cause I mean, they, without them, we don't have food for the restaurant. So, you know, I've tried to do my best to support them as much as possible. And it's kind of like my focus has always been like, start as locally as possible and then kind of work your way out. You know, like obviously I can't get fresh seafood here because we're not around the ocean. So I'll source that from Florida or, you know, even Maine or Santa Barbara, you know, it's still supporting the United States and their, their produce, you know, or whatever they can harvest. Um, I mean, we're getting ready for spring right now. We just pulled, we have 76 different ferments going. So we're like, we need to make some space. So like, dump all the fermented tomato juice in here and we're going to reduce it down to a syrup or, you know, all this different stuff to kind of make way because, you know, I foresee some of these farms still needing, probably still struggling a bit until things, everybody's back open hundred percent. So just got to make way for that. Most chefs, at least all your predecessors have been one to two years at the catbird seat. So do you feel any sort of anxiety or anxious that like the clock is ticking because everybody else has usually done one or two years before they move on to open their own restaurant or or something like that? Or are you just kind of in the moment, not even really thinking about that? Like once it gets kind of closer, you'll start thinking about like what you want to do next. Yeah, I think you got to kind of find a little bit of a balance in your head for that. Because, um, you know, I, ha- I have a family. I will need a job after this. Um, I do have an idea of what I'd like to do. I have an idea of places around here I would like to do it. But at the end of the day, this is what's most important. You know, so I can't get distracted by by that. Like I said, a great opportunity at the worst time ever. It's just the amount of people that haven't been able to come through here and experience it, you know, and that opens up exposure or uh, investment possibility, you know, like all that stuff you're kind of missing out on, which normally is not not the case at this restaurant. You know, it's like a little bit of a bummer, but at the end of the day, we have a job and we've been able to stay healthy. We've been safe and I can't complain about that. You know, they've, they've been really good to me and uh, have given me the opportunity every day. I just want to like make the best of that. So try to focus that way. But yeah, I mean, no, you always, I've wanted to open a restaurant for years, right? Yeah. I was just curious just because it's, it's a really unique situation with that restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as, as a 15 year old, 16 year old kid, I was like, I'm going to own my own restaurant one day. So there's always that thought. And, you know, thank God I didn't open that restaurant 10 years ago. Cause it's not what I would want to do now, <laughs> but. Uh, or like a year ago. That's oh man. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like, Eventually, that's going to be a conversation that'll have to be have to be had. But it's just all about you know figuring out the right time, and that year will go pretty quick. So yeah, sorry you broke up there a little bit. Um, 
but you're back. So yeah. Uh, eight more questions. Uh, ask them to everybody who comes on the podcast. So we just kind of get, uh, it's nice kind of compare and contrast and, and get some thoughts. Who would you say has been the biggest influence on your cooking career so far? I would have to say just the amount of things I learned from Sean, you know, obviously like growing up in Florida, most of my family on my mom's side is all from Kentucky. So I grew up eating these, you know, at Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner and stuff, these like Southern dishes, but to see them refined um, and see the history behind them has been huge. Yeah. I'd probably have to say Sean and I've worked with him the longest and was able to learn just a lot from, you know, produce cookery, vegetable cookery, meat cookery, um, seeing him evolve as a chef and being a part of that evolution. Um, and I learned a lot about how to approach a dish and simplify it and different level things there that I still apply every day. What's the one kitchen item, it's not a knife, uh, that you can't live without? It's a must-have in your kitchen. Hmm. That's a good... I'm just trying to think. That's a good question. I want to say a spoon because you could probably do pretty much anything with a spoon. A coon spoon. It's been a frequent answer. That that and towels are kind of the, probably the two most popular. Yeah, I didn't think about towels. Yeah, yeah. You use your apron, I guess. You might burn yourself. What's the one Nashville restaurant that's not your own that you'd recommend? So like the scenario I always give is, uh, you know, somebody is flying through the airport, flight got delayed, they're stuck overnight, they're going to grab dinner somewhere, but you guys aren't open. They reach out to you. Hey, where should I go? Oh, man, that's so tough. You can give it, you can also mention like a couple, you know, it doesn't have to be just one if you've got a couple. Let me, yeah, let me, let me give you my top 10 now. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to say, obviously, Bastion, because I love the experience once once they're able to uh, get back with no social distancing. It's just such a fun speakeasy restaurant in there. It's amazing. Um, I really love Locust, which is uh, Trevor Moran's restaurant over in 12 South. does like, you know, dumplings and kakagori and just insane noodle dishes, which is one thing like moving back here was like, I'm going to miss like all the noodle spots in Atlanta. And he's doing some very similar stuff. So and then. Obviously, not dinner, but lunch. Anybody that comes to Nashville has to go to Arnold's Country Kitchen. It's a must. Those are like three of like the top. We have like 10 places we recommend to everybody that come into the restaurant that asks us what to do. But those three right there at the top of the list, I think. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you haven't been to that you want to go to someday. Travel destination, Japan. Certain city like Tokyo or Osaka or just Japan in general? Probably... Probably just Japan in general. My old roommate, Morgan, spent a lot of time over there. And just to be able to take a trip with him would be would be incredible. Um, restaurant, it's a tough one. Um, it's hard because a lot of these these guys, like as I came up cooking, now I really wanted to eat at their restaurants when they were there. Or, you know, have stepped back a little bit. So that's what I'm trying to think about this one. Um, I think I really want to try, man, so tough. Um, maybe Saison in San Francisco. I've, I've heard nothing but amazing things about that restaurant. What's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Ooh, um, man, I've seen a lot of crazy things. I'm just trying to think. There's some. Uh, there's so many different ways I could go with this. I think the craziest I would have to say is like people doing uh, things with other people that they shouldn't do under the table. You know, in public, we saw that a lot at the hotel in Orlando because they had these big tables and it was dim in there. And, you know, you have probably escorts with these businessmen. Yeah. I mean, you see crazy stuff happen all the time, but like it happened a lot. <laughs> what's your uh, food guilty pleasure? Like, what's the one thing, like if you're in the grocery store and like you're walking down the aisles and you're like, I can't go down that aisle because I know this is down there or, you know. Fast food count? Yeah. I'm going to go Taco Bell. Taco Bell. <laughs> God. Yeah, 100%. What's your, what's your go-to Taco Bell order? So usually I'll do uh, number six, beef supreme chalupa meal with a Baja Blast. Ah, I'm the same. Okay. Chicken quesadilla. Um, and then I'll either get it. See, they made it hard now because you have to download the app if you want to get the beef quesadilla. Oh, okay. So some places, if you don't have the app, they're like, oh, we can't make it for you. I'm like, what if, just charge me for a chalupa. I know you know how to make it. You know, it's either a beef quesadilla or a Crunchwrap Supreme in fire sauce. Not try to help at all. What's uh, like your favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked? kind of created, like looking back on it, that's, you can kind of point to that moment where everything kind of came together. That's the moment where it all started to make sense. As a, as a young cook or just for that dish? 
just to, you know, it, looking back on like your career so far, like you can kind of point to that moment. Um, so I had done a dinner with Trevor Moran when he was still here at Capard Seat. We did three nights in the stables behind Husk and Sean came in for one of them. And I did a dish with uh, dry aged duck breasts with burnt eggplant, shiso and black plum. It's like really nice eggplant and shiso and plum locally. And he told me like as he was leaving, he's like, that dish was executed very well, created very well and made me proud. And then left. So <laughs> probably there, you know, and it was just so such a simple dish, but there was a lot of like complexity to it and a lot of like levels of flavor in it. I'd probably say that's where it kind of started really clicking on how I approach things. And then last question, you know, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Some people are, some people aren't, but if you are, is there a favorite kind of moment episode scene that stands out to you kind of looking back on him? Or if you aren't, you know, I think you mentioned Emeril, is is there a culinary personality, somebody who's on like TV that was super influential for you? Um, obviously, Emeril was super influential in just kind of helping ignite my passion for cooking. If I had to choose an episode of Bourdain, it was the one where they go to Japan and do the cook it raw with Renee and all those guys. And I also read, you know, like every other young cook, I read his book before I went to CIA. I read his book and I read both of Michael Roman's book. And I think honestly, reading Michael Roman, his first book is what really, like before I started cooking, really made me want to go to the culinary institute. But yeah, definitely that Cook It Raw episode. It's just so many great chefs packed into like one episode in a place I want to visit, you know. Uh, where can people find you? Instagram, social media, website, plug everything. Uh, yeah, Instagram, it's uh, Baxterd. So B-A-X-T-E-R-D. If they want to watch me paint mediocre pictures, be Baxter Art. Uh, and then, you know, the Capricorn, the underscore capward seat i think on instagram and you guys are open wednesday through saturday through saturday reservations through talk reservations through talk yep book out about 30 days in advance it's a rolling kind of opens up every 30 days and books pretty quick so yeah yeah appreciate you you know coming on anytime anybody who comes on open invitation even if it's just you know guys are changing over new menu and you want to promote it for you know 10 15 minutes or something just hit me up let me know uh, happy to help, you know, whenever I can. Like I said, had a great experience at the Capward seat with your menu in the fall and everything. Looking forward to kind of coming back and, and seeing what's new and everything too sometime here in the near future. Nashville's pretty close for us. So it's only like five, six hour drive. So it's not even that, it's not that bad when you can just kind of make a weekend out of it. And there's a lot of great places to to eat and see in Nashville. So, you know, looking forward to, you know, everything else that you're doing and, and eventual progression and next steps and all that stuff for you but um we'll definitely be back and and seeing you soon and like i said i really appreciate you coming on and and uh, hit me up if you ever need anything will do thank you so much for having me man thanks again to chef brian baxter for coming on the podcast taking some time out of his busy schedule and just you know talking about his career and food and everything like that he's an awesome dude it was, it was great to you know even with the couple of connection issues that we had it was still awesome to just be able to talk with him for, you know, 60, 90 minutes and and just kind of, you know, no topic was really off subject. You know, everything was answered, you know, open and honestly too. He didn't shy around or beat around the bush or anything. So can't wait to get back down to, you know, the catbird seat. They change over, their, you know, their theme of their menu with the seasons and everything and then and tinker with some of the dishes there. So make sure you follow them on Instagram, reservations on talk. So talk is awesome because it's all prepaid and everything. So you just go. The only thing I think you have to pay for is any drinks that you get at the end of the night and and you can even start out, you know, at the Patterson house right below it and pop in there. And they have like some small bites and stuff at the Patterson house, but you can get a drink or something like that. And, you know, they'll take it upstairs with you, too. So it's it's very like a Michelin starred kind of restaurant experience. But you're in Nashville and it's just kind of more casual. I mean, they were playing the only music I really remember them playing was like Metallica at the beginning, I think, and some heavy metal stuff. And then that kind of transitioned out. But there was one part I forgot to ask him, too, was. It was toward the end of the dinner and there was one of the other diners that was eating there and they asked him about something about like where to get some sort of, I don't know if it was like Szechuan cuisine or something like that in Atlanta and Baxter and I forget who the other guy, it was one of the other guys in the kitchen, but they most of both kind of spent some time in Atlanta and they were going back and forth about like, now that place that you recommended sucks, really go to this one and stuff like that. So that was pretty funny just to kind of remember that, you know, like I said, awesome restaurant experience to so make sure, you know, if you're into food, something like that, make sure you go. 
it's a limited residency. So like I said, I mean, they've done the fall and winter menu. They're on a spring menu now. So they'll cycle around again too as well. And and maybe he'll be there a little longer since the previous chefs weren't there as long as they normally are because of COVID and everything. But it's not a restaurant that if you kind of have inclinations of going, like you need to go. You can't just wait and be like, oh yeah, you know, the next time I go to Nashville, like, cause who knows when that's going to be. And he, you know, he could be on and doing his own, you know, restaurant or doing something else, you know, with a different restaurant or something like that, whatever, you know, he envisions for his, his next steps. But hopefully it's, you know, when he does get to that point, I do hope that it's, you know, a restaurant of his own that he's open in and, and sticks around in the Nashville area, just cause it's kind of close to to where I live, at least for my own benefit. Other things kind of coming up, you know, obviously I have the restaurant reviews on on Mondays and parts now known on Wednesdays. Working on scheduling some other, you know, chef interviews for chefs and guests and stuff like that. Have a few kind of in the works um, and everything. Not sure exactly when they'll come out. So there'll be just kind of more announcements as we kind of get closer to that stuff. This feed will go relatively silent for a little while here towards kind of the end of May, um, just due to a break and vacation and, and all that stuff. So there'll be a little bit more uh, probably coming out on that uh, as we get closer to that too as well. But uh, make sure you follow the Instagram account if you're not already following us at Spoon Mob on Instagram. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook too as well, but everything kind of feeds off uh, the Instagram account. Make sure you're visiting the website, um, new pages and, and stuff like that always going up, uh, new chef bios, you know, new course breakdowns, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff. So always kind of check. I tell everybody check in there like once a week and just kind of click around and see what's new because there'll always be a new name um, at least once a week popping up in the, the chef drop down menu too as well. So, um, but yeah, appreciate everybody listening. I hope you guys, you know, enjoyed uh, the interview with Chef Brian Baxter. Like I said, um, you know, check out his art too as well. Um, it's, it's a really cool feed. He's usually, I feel like he does at least one painting a week kind of, and he's super into it. You could just tell from the interview, like it's something that he is super passionate about. And he just kind of like lit up when we got onto that topic. Not that, you know, he's not passionate about food or anything, but it's just, you could tell he's kind of got these linear kind of dual things that he does that are separate, but you know, and then, and eventually he'll, you know, I don't know if I'll ever put any artwork in the restaurant himself. But I think he did paint like the for the opening menu, he did like paint the logo, I believe, or something like that. Um, I read. So, you know, it's pretty awesome, too, as well, that he's been able to kind of incorporate some of that into the restaurant. And hopefully we'll be able to, you know, as, as things progress for him. So but that's it for this episode of Chefs and Guests. So keep an eye out for the feed in the, in the coming weeks with some updates and everything. And the Instagram, too, as well, uh, help spread the word. And we'll talk to you guys later.